and welcome to Late Night Talks, a weekly podcast talking to science fiction and fantasy authors about their creative process and how they got started in publishing. I talk to traditionally published and self-published authors about their influences, their inspirations and their latest work. My guest this evening is Tim Pratt. He's a science fiction and fantasy author with over 20 novels. His most recent is a duology from Angu Robot Books, which began with Doors of Sleep and recently wrapped up with Prison of Sleep. This interview took place in February 2021. Let, let's go back to the beginning because I don't know your origin story. How did you get into science fiction and fantasy? You know, I was uh, always a big science fiction and fantasy reader from the time I was quite young. Yeah. Um, my parents, you know, I grew up kind of poor in the South, um, in North Carolina, mostly. Traveled around a lot with my mom when I was very little. But from about five years old on, I was in the South. And we didn't have much money, but my parents were both big readers. So the house was just always full of, you know, they'd go to a yard sale and find a box full of mass market paperbacks and just bring it home. Right. Mm. And they especially liked horror. Um yeah, really mass market horror was my mom's jam. And my great grandmother who watched me in the summers was a, was a hard science fiction fan. Wow. Right? And uh, so I would stay there and like, I love to read. And she had this guest room that was just full of bookshelves and it was Clark and Asimov and Heinlein, right? It was my entire education in golden age SF. Right. And I remember I stayed there summer after summer and I read everything or everything I wanted to, there might've been some things I skipped. Right. But I read all of them and I sort of came up to her and said, you know, when I was 12 or whatever, I think I've read all of all of the books in the guest room. You know, I'm kind of bored. Can we go to the library? And she said, you haven't read them all. Come here. And she leads me into the room and she opens up the dresser drawers, which I'd never touch because not my dressers. Yeah. There's no clothes in the dresser drawers. They're just full of mass market paperbacks. Oh, wow. So I really credit her with getting me especially into this genre. Um, and she didn't like short stories. She only liked novels. So if she would accidentally pick up a short story collection somewhere, she would fling it at me in disgust. And so that's when I <laughs> I got to take those home. So that's, that's where the love of short fiction really developed. And I've just, I've all, I've been writing. I started submitting stories in high school and collecting rejections, you know, from the time I was probably 14. I think I got my first rejection letter from weird tales when I was 14. Wow. My parents got me a manual typewriter. I was very excited to get an electric typewriter when I was in high school. You know, I didn't type on a computer until college really. <laughs> And just kept submitting. And, you know, when I was in my in my 20s, I started to sell a little bit to the small press here and there. And mm -hmm. I just kept going. Wow. You, you'll probably know this, given, especially given your, as you said, your grandma's love of science fiction. But I, I do a podcast um, about action movies. And we got to interview Michael Ironside. Oh, wow. And, and he was, because it was the 30th anniversary of, of Total Recall. And we, we spoke to him about that. And as part of the kind of just chatting to him about other things and science fiction in general, he said... Yeah, so my granddad used to be part of um, sci-fi. He said originally sci-fi was a magazine, and it wasn't for people. It was a limited, like it was a closed thing with Heinlein and a bunch of others, like a club, a book club oh, thing, wow. he says. And his his granddad was apparently a member of that too. And so he knew all of these guys. Wow. Like, And then he goes, yeah, that's my granddad. And I was like, we were just like, what? <laughs> And it's like, yeah, yeah. And then they opened it up and made it a public thing where people could then join sci-fi magazine, I think it was. And then it grew. And we were just sat there like, wow, your roots go way back beyond mine compared to sci-fi. <laughs> it's just like, I had no idea. And he's like, yeah, yeah. My my granddad knew like, you know, Heinlein and Asimov and this one. And wow, we were just like, wow, I had no idea. Yeah, my, uh, my late boss at Locust Magazine, Charles Brown, the founder of the magazine who passed away 
uh, some years ago. He was friends with Heinlein. Heinlein lived down in on the Central Coast in Bonnie Dune uh, near Santa Cruz. And after he died, he gave his book collection to Charles. So we had in the basement at Locus, we had Heinlein's paperbacks, right? Um, all stamped with, you know, his name and address in the inside front cover, right? And it was pretty cool. And we had a lot of his books too. Like we had all these all these foreign editions, right? Because he just, he would get books from all over the world and he kept them on a shelf. And that shelf was then in the in the basement at Locus for years and years. It was pretty cool to like touch history, you know? Yeah, yeah, this is it. So were those your biggest kind of influences in the early days then, all of the sort of the big original sci-fi names? They really were. It's funny that I do so much fantasy writing, especially earlier in my career. I've mm. done more science fiction lately. Yeah. Um, I remember a, a big thing for me was when I was probably 14 or so, I went to the county library and saw the first volume of the year's best fantasy and horror, the Datlow Windling series. And I actually have on a shelf back there. You can just see them up at the top. I have all whatever 23 volumes on my, on my shelf back there. <laughs> and those are still such a great education in modern fantasy. And I'm in a couple of them, right? So like I got to this thing that had been so foundational for me reading, discovering, you know, Joe Haldeman was in there and, uh, Jonathan Carroll, Charles DeLint, Tanith Lee, right? All of these writers who, Lucia Shepard, people who were big influences on me. Then many years later, I got to be in the book a couple times, <laughs> which was a real high point in my career. Um, yeah, it was just, I was really lucky that I was exposed, despite my sort of very rural upbringing, I was exposed to so much great science fiction and fantasy. That's really lucky, really lucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, my parents weren't really into that. They were like, oh, can you not read something else for a change? But <laughs> but I think they then got to the point they were happy just because I was constantly reading. I, I've sure. never not been reading a book since I was about eight. And after a while, they're like, well, he's reading. He's, he's fine. He's okay. He's not a slow uh, kid, you know, so. <laughs> my mother once complained that she couldn't punish me effectively when I was a teenager because she could ground me. I would just sit in my room and read. And she said, I just <laughs> Good myself, you Oh, wait. Oh. I, I can't forbid you to read books. I just can't bring myself to do it. So I was unpunishable. <laughs> it's like, go outside and play. Oh, I want to stay in and read. <laughs> no, you'll go out and be an outdoors kid. Yeah, that'll teach you. That's right. I, I constantly find that I'm being almost like updated and renovated by new people that I read and I'm constantly picking up things and admiring people and thinking oh that's interesting and so are there any people more recently in the last like 10-15 years that you think have had some kind of an influence on you because obviously I write predominantly fantasy and but some of the modern people I think oh that person's probably had a bit of an impact or this one or that one. Yeah it's hard to say you know I I look back at early influences you know, I read a lot of Stephen King uh, yeah. when I was young. Uh, he was probably my favorite writer when I was in middle school. Um, and so I, I think certainly a lot of that. Uh, Theodore Sturgeon, I read a lot as a teenager and in college and that whole approach to humanistic science fiction, right? right? Like what's interesting about technology and science fiction is the impact it has on people. I feel like those people are just deep down in my DNA the more modern people that I read, I absolutely read them more analytically and sort of think of ways to steal what they do, right? Um, <laughs> uh, Jonathan Carroll, we just actually did an interview with him for Locus talking about his newest book, which is only published in Poland and Italy, Mr. Breakfast. And I was just thinking about how much I love love his books. And what I love about them is how bizarre and ambiguous they are. You just never know what's going to happen from page to page. And it has this real... this 
I have nothing against fantasy that is sort of systematized and has rules. You know, I grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons and I've written stuff with magic systems, but I also like things where there's this bizarre sense of the numinous, right? Like you just, magic is weird, indefinable, hard to understand. And I admired that a lot in his writing. So that's something that I I tried to take on. Um, Kelly Link is my favorite short story writer. Uh, I don't even know that I could replicate the sort of effects that she does, but she's definitely someone I discovered as an adult, uh, started reading when I was sort of already in the field mm. who had a huge impact on me in terms of what it's possible to do with short fiction. Uh, so she was major. I don't know. I'm reading all the time. The, um, the past two years I've been a judge for the Ray Bradbury prize. Right. So the, the LA times festival of books does a whole bunch of book prizes. And they added a couple years ago with the, support of the Bradbury estate, a specific science fiction and fantasy prize. And I've been on a jury with Tanana Reeve Dew and Kelly Link, which is awesome. They're fantastic. And we actually have almost wrapped up our deliberations for 2020. We, uh, we worked out our top 10 list and this weekend we're going to narrow it down to the top five and, and settle for sure on a winner. Um, so for the past two years, I've been really immersed in the breadth of what's happening now in science fiction and fantasy. And yeah. it's just such a, I mean, it's tremendous. Like, I had maybe like a lot of people been reading less new stuff. Um, I was reading a lot of crime and mystery fiction because my whole life is science fiction. So I was reading sort of outside the genre, you know, where I would go, I would, re- well, let's reread some Terry Pratchett. I'm stressed out and that'll chill me out, right? <laughs> like that'll relax me. Because last year, no one can really blame anybody for taking uh, refreshers right? and uh, a palate, palate cleanser and, you know. Yeah, it, it has been hard to stay on top of, of the award reading, especially for a prize that's for best science fiction or fantasy book, right? It's not novel it's not collection it's not novel it's book right it's just anything in those genres so it's been a huge field uh of stuff to explore but i mean there's been there's you know uh susanna clark one of my favorite writers mm-hmm. she her new book piranesi i loved super great book um william gibson is still doing great stuff you know agency i loved is a great book um stephen graham jones is a writer that i hadn't read very much until the past couple of years yeah, uh, his book "Only Good Indians" just a tremendous horror novel. Anyway, I've wandered a little far afield from your your influences question. <laughs> it's fine. You know. It's fine. <laughs> uh, something I was going to ask later on is that, but I can ask it now because you, you brought it up. Is do you ever, given that you you know you work at Locus and you you write this stuff anyway, do you ever just sometimes have to read something else? Do you ever like when you're doing your work at um, at Locus when you're obviously I know you don't. Um, do reviews much for them now? I heard you say in another in another interview. But in the UK, we have something called a busman's holiday. Where, like, <laughs> have you heard that phrase before? Yeah. I mean, yeah. do you ever get that sometimes where you you, you just look at a book and you go, oh, "I'm going to go and read a romance or a or a you know some, just because I can't. I do this for work. I write this. And do you ever sometimes think like, oh, just nah." It It is possible to get burned out, and it's a danger. Um, many years ago, I was on the Nebula Award short fiction jury. Right. Because sort of I came to, to prominence in the field when I had a story that was a Nebula nominee, and it was a jury pick. Like, the, the people did not choose me. The jury picked the story. <laughs> to be on right. And that kind of really raised my profile in the field a lot. And so I thought, you know, this is important. I should give back. So I was on the jury. Uh, and I really tried to read every piece of short science fiction and fantasy that was published that year, which is hard to do, but I was at Locus. So all the magazines came through, right? And I would spend every single lunch break and I would stay late and I would read, right? Everything that I could. And by the end of that, I never wanted to read a short science fiction or fantasy story ever again. I was 
Oh, let a, I, it's amazing that I could even write any of it. Um, but I've always been a big crime and mystery fan. You know, I love uh, Donald Westlake. I love um, Kate Atkinson. Mm-hmm. Um, Tana French, the the Dublin Murder Squad stuff is really fantastic. There's there's tons of uh, Ken Bruin, the Irish writer. Lots of crime and mystery, and that tends to be what I fall back into. And I like romance too. I, I read some romance, especially um, like Jennifer Cruzy romance that will sometimes have elements of crime or mm. or sort of thriller elements. Um, and I even like the sort of unreliable psychological thriller female narrator thing that has been so incredibly popular, right? Uh, the Gone Girl, right? The Gillian Flynn sort of things. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I, I love unreliable narrators. I love um, big twists. And I actually, I read one recently. What's it called? It's by um, Amy Malloy, I think is her name. It's called uh, Goodnight Beautiful. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's one of those unreliable narrator, you know, female character driven kind of books but it's so self-aware like there's a character in it who's a professor of feminist literature who's right. talking about those kind of books so it's very meta, <laughs> very meta yeah <laughs> and, uh, and i appreciated that and the first twist you know about a third of the way in or a quarter of the way in there's a big twist that just completely caught me by surprise and that does not really happen right i've been writing like people hate watching movies with me because i'll be like oh what's gonna happen is this, right? <laughs> There's the killer. Like, right. well, we're you get five so, minutes in. Come on, Tim. <laughs> you, you spend so long. You know how it is, right? We spend so long thinking about stories. And when something can really blindside me like that, I actually went and re-skimmed the beginning. I was sure she had to have cheated, right? She had to have like not played, but she played fair. She just used my assumptions as a reader against me. Ah. And, and later on, there's a there's the feminist teacher is talking to a horrible you know, guy who took her class just because it's a class on feminist literature and there were lots of women in it. And he says, well, you've almost convinced me I should question some of my assumptions when I read. I was like, all right, you don't need to stick the knife in. I know. (laughs) We get it. We get it. (laughs) It's a fair cop. So yeah, I I really do uh, read outside science fiction and fantasy, but I find, you know, I'll read some of that and then I'm refreshed and then I can come back to it. Um, And there's, there's such a wide array too of science fiction and fantasy. Like sometimes I'll, I like grim, dark fantasy, but you know, sometimes it's a little bit too much knife wounds that are full of mud. Yes. And uh, then I'll go read some some space opera or something, you know. Yeah. You can jump around. It contains multitudes, our field. It's true. I, I do do that as well. I, I did read different things. Like I, I just read uh, a Peter McLean dark, which a book which is kind of countered. Dark. And, you know, I enjoyed that. And then I went and read something else. But every now and then I'll read some like Joe Lansdale, um, some of his oh, yeah, ha- ha- Happ and Leonard books, which I love. I mean, oh, they're... Mm-hmm. They're so, so refreshing good. and they're yeah. always short, but he is a master. He's, he does so much with so little. I admire him. Absolutely. He's phenomenal yeah, at what I he agree. does. And I can pick up on his books, read that. And that's, I have fun. It's, it's exciting, but there's, you know, there's no supernatural, there's no weirdness in, and it's like mm-hmm. spending time with these characters. And then I come back and go, okay, now I'll tackle a, you know, 700 page Bradley Bolia sat in the next one in the series. I love Brad. I love his books. I'm going to talk to him probably in a couple of months about his stuff and all sorts of things. But every now and then I'm like, okay, I've just done a 700 page book. I need something different. I need like a, a complete change because I'm writing it. I'm reading it. I'm like, yeah, I got, yep. I got to have something else. Cleanse the palate. Yeah, this is it. This is it. So you've written a lot of short stories. I've, I think I've written half a dozen short stories in my entire life. I just, yeah. for whatever reason, I I can't I can't do it. I haven't got into the habit. I haven't practiced it. So one of the questions is for me, but other people as well is, how do you know when you have an idea that it's only worthy of a short story, 
and when it can be expanded. Because take something simple, like when we were kids, you'd play Invisible or Fly. Mm-hmm. And, and then if you thought, okay, what if someone does get invisibility? What would that actually be like? And I started thinking about it and I thought, okay, how would it affect them day to day? How would it affect their job? Would you know, you sneak in and you find your friends talking about you and you, they don't know you're there. That's going to change your perception. And suddenly like that suddenly grows. I'm like, yeah, no, that, now that's not, that's not a short story. So how do I, you know, when do you know an idea is, okay, that's, that's it. I'm just going to explore this bit and then I'm done as opposed to, oh, I can go into so many ways with this. Well, it's funny because I'm, I'm a very character driven writer. Um, occasionally my plotting gets complimented and I'm always a little baffled because I'm one of those people who thinks plot is just what your characters do. Right. <laughs> like, like you get a character, you try to make them as psychologically realistic as you can. And then you put them in a situation, probably a really weird situation since I write genre fiction and yep. then just write about what they would do. And if it's too easy for them, you add some other characters who have their own motivations doing whatever they do. Right. Uh, ideally interfering with the other people. So for me, often my short stories end up being sort of test kitchens for novels. Like I'll write about a character ah. almost as if I'm auditioning them to see if their voice is strong enough, if their personality is strong enough to cover a novel. Um, since I don't tend to do sort of big plot driven stuff, I usually start with character and sort of uh, uh, concept first, right? Yeah. So my, my book, Doors of Sleep, the main character is Vax. I wrote two or three short stories about him before I did a novel. Um, and he's a character who, you know, the conceit is whenever he falls asleep or loses consciousness, he wakes up in another branch of the multiverse, right? So that's very, it's well designed for episodic sort of stories, right? That yes. idea really lends itself to like, here's a world, here's a, here's a difficulty, here's a situation that I have to cope yep. with. So I did a few with him um, and then thought, you know, I think this is enough if I gave it sort of more of a narrative through line engine. If I gave him a bigger problem to solve and an antagonist who could follow him across worlds, mm. then that's something that could sustain a longer novel. The other, the other thing to keep in mind is my novels are like 80,000 words long, 90,000 words long, right? They would, they probably qualify as a short story by your standards. <laughs> um, so I tend to sort of do pretty, pretty linear, smaller scale, shorter time period stories yeah. anyway, for whatever reason I've, I've written ongoing series i wrote like a 10 book urban fantasy series yeah, but it was so. it was organized much more like um like happen leonard than like the malazan book of the fallen for example right <laughs> Not a yeah. giant story it's episodic the characters go and change and there's kind of bigger stuff happening in the background but every story every book is kind of its own thing yeah sort of that yeah. mystery crime novel approach um, so for me, it's really like whether I feel like the character is interesting enough for me to want to spend 300, 400 pages with them. And if they are, then I just scale up the kind of difficulties that they face. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's really for me, it's about are these characters that I want to spend time with either because I think they would be wonderful people to hang out with or because they're so uh, in the case of many of my villains, they're so awful that I'm just fascinated by them. I just want to watch what horrible things they are going to do next. I've never thought of it like that. I, I think it's because a lot of the short stories I probably read or the way I was thinking about them was that they'd started with the the elevator concept and then they've explored it in their mind and then they've just taken a segment and they just they show you that part. And, right. it, and then it's just like, right, and that's it. But using it as a test bed for sort of longer stories, that's that sounds really interesting. I've not and thought And, you know, that. sometimes they're their own thing. Uh, you know, if it's a story, I try to write about the most remarkable day that that character's had, right? Yes. Or the most the most terrible day or series of days that they've had. Yeah. Um, 
And often I, I mean, I have a ton of characters that I thought, oh, it would be fun to explore them at novel length, but I can write a book or two a year, right? There's, there's, you know, I I can't do it all. I do sometimes do sort of structural experiments with my short stories. Um, I had one called Cup and Table that's been reprinted a lot. Um, That was originally an anthology that uh, Dave Moles and Susan Grappi edited called 20 Epics. They wanted short stories that felt like they had epic fantasy feel. And I thought, well, how do you do that? And my original idea was I would write an epic fantasy story that was all the transitional moments. It was all the sort of scenes before the giant battle, you know, or after the Citadel fell, right? Uh, Not actually show any of the real pivotal moments. And I ended up kind of pushing it beyond that and ended up sort of accidentally having to show some of the pivotal moments. But that was a a sort of structural experiment that wouldn't have made any sense at novel length, right? It would be, I guess you could smash a 10 book fantasy into a single volume, but it would be really (laughs) annoying, I think. Um, there are little tricks you can do, but you might overstay your welcome, right? Like uh, I did a story for my Patreon um, last month that was, uh, it was called um, Six Things That Happened the Moment You Left. And it's a second person story about this character who has just magical shit happening around them all the time. But nice. if they always just miss, right? And it was, again, this is not a conceit that would make any sense at novel length. It was fun to do as a story, yeah. Right, but you can overstay your welcome. So if I'm trying to be too cute, sometimes it's better if it's a story. So with Doors of Sleep, you said you did a, a few a few short stories with Zax. And then um, did did your patrons then say, we like this as well? Were they encouraging you to say, do do more? We want to see more of this. They did. They wanted more stories with the character. And and um for me, the reason that I was initially resistant to do it, I just thought it was going to be a series of stories because it didn't have a through line, yeah. right? It didn't have, just by the very nature of it, I couldn't see how it could uh, have like, I feel like a novel, you can write a purely episodic novel, but for me, I wanted it to, I feel like I wanted to have a plot engine, right? Something that's running mm-hmm. through it. Yep. Uh, and once I figured that out, I was like, oh, this could be a novel. And then I had to make some deviations from how the story was. I made him a little bit older, a little more experienced, just because otherwise he would have spent too much of the novel falling apart. Um, I made some tweaks to his companions a little bit for how uh, they were in the novel also to sort of better equip them to deal with what were going to be larger threats, sort of less threat of the day and more overarching threats. They just needed to have a little more capability so they didn't just get squashed like bugs. So certainly the, the short stories are recognizable and there are chunks of them floating around in the novel, like bits of potato in a stew, right? There, there are pieces of those stories, elements of them still appear in the book, but they're pretty transformed uh, since I had to make some changes. I'm never sure about Patreon. Obviously you, you, you build your community of people that want to follow you and then support you. And I guess if they, if they've gone that far to put some money down, they must like what you do. And therefore they're probably the right people to listen to, as opposed to general people. If you ask opinion on the internet, you'll get, 50 of one and 50 of another. And it's like, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not going to bother asking. They're, they're my choir. I preach to them. They, they like what I have to say. Mm. So uh, it's always um, a little bit daunting to then uh, release something out into the wider world and see how, how everybody takes it as a whole. Um, for my Patreon, it was interesting. It was really, I started it. What? Like six years ago now. Wow. Um, maybe seven years ago. When did I start it? <laughs> 2013, I think. That can't be right. That's insane. God, 2015? I, I don't remember. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> a while. It's got to be a while the, now. The years all run together. But yes, definitely a while. I think there's over 60 stories in the archive or something now. Um, wow. But I did it because I was, I love short stories. 
I'm a better short story writer than a novelist. I think I've become a pretty good novelist, but short stories were my first love and the thing that I that I feel is sort of my natural length. And I wasn't writing them anymore, right? Because I was writing mm-hmm. novels. I would do a story if I got invited to a project to an anthology or something. Yeah. But when I was starting out, I was writing a story a month. Like that was how I was, uh, that was something um, I used to talk to the late Jay Lake about. We kind of came up at the same time, me and him. And he was more prolific than I was. He would write a story a week sometimes. Wow. And his whole thing was, if you just, you keep doing it, right? You're going to build those muscles, yeah. right? You're going to figure out how to solve all kinds of different story problems, how to write in all sorts of different genres. And I could not go at it as hard as he did. I never had that much energy. But I wrote a lot of short stories. And I just, I realized, you know, this thing that I love the most that I'm probably the best at doing of anything that I do, I'm not doing it anymore. Yeah. But what I'll do is I'll trick myself. I'll start a Patreon. I'll promise a story a month. And if enough people, you know, 50 people sign up and want to give me money, then I'll feel an obligation. I'll owe it to them. <laughs> yes. right? And it worked. And I was able to recenter short fiction in my life. And it's great because I can really experiment. I can use it as a test bed for, for novels. I can use it as a, as just an experimental thing to play with structure. I can, I can do ambitious, weird things. And if they fail, you know, maybe a couple of patrons will even discuss, but mostly they've been happy to to roll with me when I when I try things. So it's been immensely satisfying. And it's not, you know, there are people who are making enough money to pay all their bills through Patreon and I don't, but I make more probably than I would get selling a story to a magazine. Um, right. And often I can then, I, you know, I'll sell the reprints or I'll sell them to the podcast magazines mm. um, and they'll sort of get a wider audience beyond that, at least the best of them. Uh, so, I, I mean, the Patreon has been really tremendous for me. And at this point, it's my it's my kid's college fund. Basically, that money goes into an account for him, which yeah. is fantastic. I keep thinking about whether or not to do something like that. Um, uh, I, I don't know. It's something I might explore in the future. But I think I'm more like you. I think I'd be, rather than doing it for short stories, I might show them bits of what I'm doing, see if they like it, think, yeah. talk about projects I'm going to do next. I keep thinking about you know mentoring and helping other writers. But I think... That's that's using a lot of the same muscles that I do anyway, and so I'm thinking that's probably going to be more exhausting. So mm-hmm. that, if I was mentoring someone, I have to be very limited, I think. But anyway, it's all kind of things to think about. But yeah, as we become more hybrid authors, so many authors I know started in one thing or the other, and then they've just merged and become different different things. Some have patrons, some self publish and traditional. It, yep. it, this, the the delineation is really changed. It used to be kind of you either this or this. You can't be anything in between, and it's yep. it's changed. That the advances have come down. The yeah. the size of the series has usually tended to shrink. Usually <laughs> there are exceptions, yeah. uh, but you don't see many ten book series coming out these days. It's, it's no, rare. no. I mean, they like a trilogy. Uh, I've heard from a from a few different editors. After three books, we tend to see a fall off. So we like trilogies. You know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's rare. I think I think the most recent one of a big series that I know probably is is Bradley Bowley. He did uh, his sixth book of the series is coming out this year, but that was a kind of a. I think he did three, and they were like, "Yeah, it's going, it's going well." And then they probably gave him another three. Right. Um, and I remember back in the day, Adrian Tchaikovsky with his ten book series. He there again, he'd done three, and he got that. Then he signed him up for another four, and then they signed him up for the final three. But there was no way they were just going to hand out a ten book deal to anybody. <laughs> I mean, no, it's true. Yeah, yeah. Brandon Sanderson's keeping his his going right. He's got his two two five book series that are conjoined to form a single big epic thing. Right. Um, yeah. There's a there's a few, but it's definitely not the norm anymore. Yeah, they're kind of the tip of the spear, people. Really. Yeah. yeah. 
I really like Doors of Sleep. I really, really enjoyed oh, it. Uh, it was fantastic. I love Mina. She's yeah. brilliant. Um, <laughs> but the, I, we, I did a, uh, an online convention last week and we're talking about bad writing advice. And one thing that someone brought up is you're never supposed to start a story with someone falling asleep. Okay. And you shouldn't have that in chapters. And Adrian, like you said, I did that in one of my books. <laughs> I do it all the time. And I thought, I've just read Doors of Sleep. And he does that in every single chapter, sometimes multiple points in a chapter. (laughs) Tons of sleeping. Yeah. All the time. I was like, why did, why was it a bad rule to begin with? I don't, I don't know why. I think the, uh, what I've always heard is, you know, the character who wakes up uh, in a white room and they don't know what's happening, right? Yeah. That's because yeah. you're just externalizing your own writerly state of not knowing what the hell is about to happen in your story. Right? <laughs> it's just it's you staring at your blank page, desperately trying to think of something. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's it's Bobby Ewing in the shower. You wake up and it was just a dream the last two seasons or years or whatever. We're I remember that. New globe. Yeah. yeah, it'll go back to those kind of things. Oh dear. So when I first started reading Doors of Sleep, I thought this is just me. I thought Doctor Who and Quantum Leap, any any influence at all on the book? What's, what's, that's exactly what my agent said. It was pretty funny. Oh, okay, uh, okay. Yeah, no, I, I sent it to her and she said, this is great. It's uh, it's like a cross between Doctor Who and Quantum Leap. The, the Quantum Leap stuff was not conscious, although once a couple of people pointed it out, I did watch it with my mother when I was young. That was ah. our show that we would get together and watch together. Mm-hmm. And I think the, that's certainly that sense of a do-gooder who has no control over where he goes. Yes. But when he lands, he's going to try and make things better. Uh, must have been deep in my subconscious. Um, the Doctor Who thing, I did very much think a character like Zach's, if he doesn't have companions, is just going to be uh, utterly unhinged, right? I mean, you need somebody to talk to, first of all. Yes. Um, and And the opportunity to create emotional pain in the character by having companions his life is so precarious you know and there is a there is a moment in the book i think one of the most wrenching moments when he gets separated from from one of his companions mm-hmm. uh that was too good uh, uh um of a character problem to pass up right i i had to have people with him for that and i think it does uh very much oh you know and i watched a ton of doctor who the new who especially with my son right yep. uh less so now that he's 13 you know maybe too cool for that but we watched a lot of it um <laughs> many years of it when he was younger. So I think that stuff was all floating around. And, you know, there was, um, I never liked the show very much, but I liked the idea of the show that the, that old show sliders, which was about yes. uncontrollable travel through the multiverse. Right. And so mm-hmm. that had to be there too. But my thought was always, you know, Oh, it's a world where the sexism is mostly against men and women run everything. Oh boy. Right. That was very boring to me. I wanted a world where the sexism was against people who were robots or people who were snake people, right? Like give me something weirder. Mm -hmm. And so I, I very much tried to write, and I like alternate histories. I like an alternate history that hinges on a tiny little change. I think there's a great satisfaction in that kind of writing, Mm -hmm. but it's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to do big garish widescreen. Every world is just totally bizarrely different. They will adhere to basic physical laws of the universe. But beyond that, I just wanted it to be wild. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's one of the limits, probably because of budget of, of Doctor Who. Right. It's like, why yeah. are we always in London? And <laughs> why right. is it 90% of the time Earth? I'm like, all of time and space. And it's it's always Earth. Come on. I mean, CGI, the price has come down. They showed you what you can do in The Mandalorian with the volume. Go somewhere <laughs> else, please. Any, I stopped watching years ago. No, just I just like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> 
Uh, anyway, that's just me. But yes, I, I really like the fact it did. It did echo more so, I guess, like uh, with Quantum Leap, because there's that thing of he is himself. He's not someone else. And yeah. whenever he lands, he has this innate sense to do good because his job back on his home planet is he's a negotiator, I guess, or problem solver anyway, Zax is. So that when he lands, he's always trying to help people. Also, he's trying to find the good in people. Like, I don't want to spoil anything, but there's that one planet where the with the airships and the person is like a big game yeah. hunter. Yep. I, 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 I think it was me. I would have punched him in the nose. I just, but Zach's is like, no, no, let's let's try and find the good in this person. I'm like, right. oh, come on, you come on. <laughs> the dreadful person, absolutely. You know, product of his of his society to some extent, right? Yes. And well, Zach's whole thing in his world, he's a harmonizer, uh, and their whole thing in in his home world is a. Uh, is contributing toward the whole, right? Finding your place within the context of the whole. Yeah. And so when he's confronted, as he is over and over and over with a society that is itself poisonous and sick, it's really hard for him. And it was a fascinating challenge to write a character who doesn't solve problems with violence. Like I said, I had that tin book urban fantasy series about a main character who loved solving problems with violence. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I did my my Axiom space opera trilogy also with Angry Robot and uh, and they're they're always blowing stuff up right they're fighting alien space fascists sometimes the only thing you can do is explode them mm-hmm. and to have a character who really never doesn't want to resort to violence who wants to try to find a way forward who believes in rehabilitation and reconciliation you know and his companions are like no we should just kill this guy <laughs> um, yes. part of it is would have been a shorter book also he would he is hard to kill uh the the lecture is hard to kill mm-hmm. um but uh, it was a, it was a, I think it was good for me to approach something where I could not solve the problem just by having him stab someone. <laughs> uh, yeah, it certainly made it more challenging for him and for the readers. He says there isn't just a quick fix of, well, you kill the villain, go into the next place. Oh, there's another villain. We just kill them. <laughs> and it's that thing of, yeah, there's always repercussions, even though he's going to different universes, even though there's no connection between one and the other, so, you know, so to speak there's always repercussion because he's the constant. He's the thing that moves through all of them. And he'll know, even if no one else will know, he will know. And he's his own worst judge and character because he has his conscience with him wherever he goes. And he can't take that off like a new pair of shoes. It's just. That's right. It's yeah. I mean, a different, a different kind of character faced with a multiverse that has no consequences where you can do anything and just fall asleep and escape. Yeah. I could have very easily made it into a, into a horror novel. Right. (laughs) But. Oh yeah. If the main character had been the lector instead. (laughs) That's right. That's a very different book. Yeah. Mary, Mary, uh, world after world of mayhem. But that's like I was saying, you know, plot is what your characters do. So you find the character who's going to have particular struggles with whatever science fictional conceit you give them. And then you just watch what they do. Yeah. So given the whole falling asleep thing, do you think there are any rules that you can't break? as a writer or that you shouldn't break. I, I mean, I, I have said that I think the only sin in writing is to be boring. You know, I'll read I, any kind of experimental literature stuff that, you know, violates all sorts of norms and expectations. Um, I tend to only get upset. And again, I'm not even going to say this necessarily, this is a rule you can't break, but this is something that doesn't really work for me. Yeah. I remember reading uh, Robert Anton Wilson's Illuminatus trilogy in college and getting to the part where deep in the series, all the characters realize that they're fictional characters in the book that someone wrote. And at that point I flung the book at the wall 
right? Because I think if you're going to cut the legs out from under your entire structure, yep. I don't know that I want to fall down with you, right? Uh, I can see the fun, but I tend to believe in playing fair with your world and with your characters. But then I say that, but one of my favorite books is um, the two of them by Joanna Russ, where partway through the book, she is the author just intrudes and says, I don't think this character that I had in here is working. So we're just going to, we're going to get rid of them, right? This is going in a direction I don't want to go in. And that struck me as just whimsical and experimental for whatever reason. Um, So if it's done well enough, I think you can break just about any rule, right? Excuse me, just don't bore me. But again, what bores me might not bore someone else. I'm not a huge fan of, you know, police procedurals or legal thrillers. I tend to read crime novels about criminals or about, you know, grotty PIs, you know, slumming through back alleys. (laughs) That's more what I like, but other people love a courtroom drama, right? So no, I mean, I, there's a world of experimental literature out there sometimes that does fascinating things. Uh, Yeah. I think it's good to know the rules and once you know them, then you can sort of knowingly subvert them. If you pick up something and it's clear that they just have no idea how point of view works at all. Right. Um, uh, bad there's there's but then there's extremely you know successful bad writing uh dan brown's books often have first person or characters close third person yep. who are seeing things that they could not see from their vantage point right you have like these intrusions mm-hmm. of omniscient right describing things that the character whose head you're in can't see or be aware of yes. and it's, it's an ungainly blend of omniscient and third person i think it's inelegant but obviously hundreds of millions of readers were fine with it. So, <laughs> well, Yeah, E.L. James is the other one that started, what started mm-hmm. out of fan fiction beca- and, you know, arguably, I'd say badly written, became an international bestseller and spawned three films and spinoffs. Yeah. And- I, if you scratch somebody's particular itch, like if you hit whatever their favorite button is, they will forgive so many other things, which yeah. honestly is something I've taken comfort in as a writer, right? Like I'll write a novel and I'll be like, well, this could maybe be paced better or, you know, maybe this character is not absolutely as psychologically true nailed down as I would like them to be. But boy, the eyeball kicks are great. You know, there's some cool <laughs> weird shit in this that people are going to really like, you know, if you give them enough of what they want, then they'll forgive maybe the things that are your weaknesses. Obviously we should all strive and we should keep trying to be better at what we do and shore up the places where we're less effective as writers. And I am always studying and learning, trying right. to expand my skill set. But at the same time, I absolutely lean into the things that I am naturally good at and that by inclination, I have practiced a lot. Right. And the people who love it are going to love it. Yeah. It's, it's Grant Morrison. Most of his comic book stuff I really love. But when he does that too, when his characters sort of jump out of the page and start doing things, I just like, yeah. I, if I'm trying to buy into the world that you've set up and the characters and everything that you've created, that's okay. But then when they break the fourth wall and talk to the reader or they climb out of one panel and go into another, I'm like, no, I'm out. I'm out at that point. I it just. Can, it can... Yeah, I mean, it breaks. Uh, it can break that that immersion, right? Like that sense that you're immersed in uh, what David Mamet called the vivid continuous dream when talking about filmmaking, right? It yeah. takes you out of it, and it becomes an intellectual pleasure. And it can be a pleasure. Like it can still be. I've read metafictions that I've quite enjoyed, but my favorite kind of fiction is where I disappear into the world and where you trick my brain and you trick my mirror neurons into thinking that I'm reading about real people and their real problems. So to then have that undercut, that tends to be the thing that throws me out. Uh, out of fiction and uh, you know clearly it's a matter of taste so tell me i also your... don't like i don't like big time jumps either i'll just right. complain now i don't like it when i'm reading a series <laughs> i really enjoyed the expanse then they jump 30 years ahead i just i, I can't do it oh, okay, I okay. Too, much, too much discontinuity just bothers me 
<laughs> irrationally. I just I don't do it, and I don't do it in my in my stuff. I never have a big time jump like that. Couple months. I, I'm watching the show and I'm reading the books, so I'm not spoiling. So I've read the first four books. Okay, you have a little while before there's a before there's a time jump. But anyway, yeah, I'll read All five, right. and then we get. To, we're only going to get a season six of the show, and then that's it, as far as I know. Yeah, I think so. But yeah, book nine comes out this year, so mm-hmm. I'll read that soon. So, so tell me about your work at, at Locus. I know you said you don't do reviews. So what do you uh, do for them sort of generally? Yeah, I've, I've, I used to review more back in the day um, because I needed money more probably. <laughs> or, uh, you know, that, that 50 bucks could, uh, could really make a difference uh, when I was in my uh, late 20s with a newborn and all that. Uh, I guess I was 30 with a newborn. But um, I will still occasionally review something if there's a book that I really love that nobody else has covered for whatever reason. You know, yep. then I'll be like, well, somebody should know about this. And I, every once in a while, I'll put my hand in. Uh, I started working there. It'll be 20 years ago this, wow. this fall. Yeah, wow. August August 2001 I started. And wow. I never expected to be at any job for that long. Sort of my whole life plan was work whatever crappy office or like bookstore job and write novels on the yep. side. Yep. Uh, and instead I sort of stumbled in, I lucked into this job at Locus um, where I was early on, I was just a, a grunt. You know, that's how you started, especially back then when Charles Brown was in charge. You started out as his chauffeur. You clean the gutters, you know. Really? Oh, yeah. You you know, the office was in his house. It's not anymore. Um, we have a lovely office in Oakland now. Um, but, well, which I haven't been to in a year <laughs> because of the pandemic. But it's very nice. Um, but anyway, we were in his house. So, like, I would, yeah, I would, like, resurface his roof. That was one of the jobs that I would do um, back in the day. But gradually, I, I took on more and more responsibilities. And I, like, I do editorial and production. So I split my time. I do most of the news writing. I write the obituaries, which is probably the part of the job that I, I take most seriously. Um, I don't know. feels the most like a sacred trust, I guess. Yep. Um, I do the obits and uh, edit the interviews. Every once in a while, conduct an interview, but more often I just take the 40 pages of transcript and turn it into 20 pages without sentence fragments and ums, you know. Or connect to the two thoughts. Oh, you know, when they go seven pages later, oh, that thing that you first asked me about, let me finish answering that question. So I stitch those back together. I do all that sort of thing. And I do a lot of the actual phys- like production work in, um, in the desktop publishing and InDesign and Photoshop, putting the magazine together, uh, along with my managing editor, Kirsten, we split the production work between us. And I love both. Um, when I first started taking on writing duties at Locus, which was a long time ago, I was deeply afraid that it would mess with my ability to write fiction. That if I was doing thousands of words of news writing, would I have any energy left? Yeah. And the result was just rigorous psychological compartmentalization, right? Like I just put the the nonfiction writing in a box on this side and the fiction writing over here in a different box. And, uh, you know, I can write news all day and then I can come and I can still write fiction. At least back back when I was working five days a week there and could only write at night. And, and weekends. I went to four days a week a uh, long time ago, uh, which helped a lot also with sort of segregating the writing responsibilities. But yeah, I'm a senior editor there now. Um, senior staff. It's wild. Um, and we've been working remote since last March, right? So we went from yep. all being in an office together. I mean, we have many contributors all over the world, but the sort of core staff of half a dozen of us, <clears throat> we're all on, we're on Slack now. And, we're, you know, we're on, we do Zoom stand-up meetings, right? Where we yeah. all sit. Um and the whole the whole workflow has changed, but we've kept the magazine, we've kept it going. 
do you think he'll go back to the office? Because I know some people have said this works. We don't need to have the office. We'll save the money. We'll just keep doing it at our own home. Yeah, we, we get a ton of stuff mailed to us, right? Yep. We get a lot of books. Yeah, so yeah. we still have the office and um, uh, our senior editor, Arlie Sorg, who also edits um, Fantasy Magazine. Um, Arlie is in there. He's in the office probably every day answering the mail and doing all his stuff from the office. So there's still a presence there. As for whether we'll go back, my boss, Liza Trombi, our editor-in-chief, really likes being able to touch base with everybody mm. um, and just being able to kind of go around and check on things. It's just her management style, which is very effective. That said, she has told me she would probably only force me to come in maybe one day a week because I got to say this really works for me. Working here in my house really mm. works for me. Um, I mean, especially now, once my kid is able to go back to actual physical school, yes. it'll be different. But, you know, right now he's here and he's still doing stuff. Right. So certainly while he's trying to do school on Zoom, right, at his computer in his room, it's beneficial for me to be around, for me to be in the house. Mm. Um, but, you know, what I do is I write and I move pixels around in InDesign. And those are two things that I can do in my living room. So, <laughs> yeah, this is it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah not, not having the commute for me has been fantastic. The, you know, two hours a day you lose. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd lose every day driving or more, depending on traffic. I don't have any of that anymore because I predominantly work at home now. It's it's such a relief. It's such a. Uh, I, I don't take it for granted having you know spent many a year caught in in the car and snow and rain and traffic and. Uh, yeah, we we were in um, San Leandro for a while, and the commute was you know on a good day it was half an hour on a bad day it could be 45 minutes or even an hour because uh it was on a very choked interstate that could get very full at rush hour uh, and if there was ever an accident it was a nightmare but then we moved to a place that's you know a seven minute train ride from my house and i'm right next to the commuter train which again i have not been on for a year because it's full of viruses <laughs> i assume but my commute my commute honestly was not that bad uh, for for the last bit before quarantine kicked in. Do you think working at Locust these these you know twenty years now, as you said, has it made you more willing, or have you found it easier to uh, accept criticism and and uh, reviews from people? Because sometimes I mean I don't read reviews, but sometimes I'm sent them by yeah. certain people, and I end up reading them and. And, you know, it's this person's opinion. You go, all right, fine, whatever. I can leave him. Occasionally I read a review and they've just got something wrong. It's not that it's yeah. their opinion is actually wrong, but I can't write back to them and tell them because you right. can't. So how <laughs> do you deal with stuff like that? You know, given that you've now been, you've been on both sides of the fence effectively. Yeah. Well, I remember talking to, to Charles um, when I first started reviewing and I said, so my concern is that I'm hoping to enter this field, right? I was very much a neophyte at that time. I just sold, sold a few stories. Yeah. And uh, am I going to make enemies, right? Like, excuse me, is this, a, is this a lane that I should be getting into? And he said that his feeling from his decades in the field was that, by and large, people get it. Um, people understand that this is a field is a huge conversation. We're all reading each other. We're all thinking about what people are doing. Uh, his directive was always, if all you have to say about the book is that it's a piece of complete trash that no one should bother with, he didn't want to waste column inches in the magazine on saying that, right? You could right. damn the book just by ignoring it. Don't, <laughs> don't give it that much attention, yep. right? 
So he was fine with mixed reviews and I have profound issues with this book, but it's valuable because of whatever. Yep. Right. Um, so his policy was there should, the book should be worth talking about. And that made it a little bit easier, right? Because then if you read something, I could be absolved from even finishing it. Right. I wasn't assigned books to review. I would be offered books to review, yep. but I, if I, if I hated them, I wasn't forced to then review them. Um, in terms of dealing with my own reviews, I realized when I was, pretty young and new to the field and started getting coverage that there was no upside to ever looking at reviews because a bad review would just depress and demoralize me and a good review would make me feel smug right and neither one of those is good for me right and reviews are for other people they're not for the author uh, and I do not seek out my reviews by any means, but, you know, now people will tweet them and I have to glance at them before I retweet them, you know, at least make sure that they're not saying that I am a, a pustule upon the the anus uh, of society. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Make sure that they're, you know, it's at least, you know, says, uh, says something constructive or positive, uh, even if it's not a rave, but that said, like at this point, I, you know, I was, uh, I had to look at something on Goodreads. I forget why a friend of mine linked me to something. And while I was there, it just, I, I saw one of my books and there was a review and it was a one-star review and it really hated it. Just hated the book, but the review was actually hilarious. Right. And this was a book that I, you know, published in 2007 or something. Right. It's hardly fresh in my mind. And, you know, I was sort of reading it thinking, yeah, you know, probably that's a fair cop. Right. Like (laughs) that probably were a lot of info dumps in that book. You're probably right. But it was just a very funny, bitchy cabaret act of a review. And I thought, okay, I can appreciate this as an art form. (laughs) You're not going to work for everybody. Um, yeah. So when, when, and writers do, people who are trying to write fiction who also want to write reviews sometimes have some, some hesitance, right? Um, and to them, I can only say, I think most of us, after you've had a couple novels out, after you've gone through this ringer a few times, and after you've seen the divergence in reviews, right? I've had books where one reviewer absolutely panned it, thought it was garbage. And I mean, prominent reviewers, like in, in trades, I've had, you know, reviews in the trades that were diametrically opposed. And what you realize is that once you get beyond the basic competencies, so much of it is subjective. Right. Like once you can kind of put a story together, right. And you're not making giant novice errors. So much of it is just down to personal taste and whether what you're doing works for somebody else. Yeah. You know, like, uh, like Shirley Jackson said in response to the, the letter she got from a reader who hated her work. If you don't like my peaches, don't shake my tree. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. Yeah. I just remember, I think it was, it's gotta be a few years ago now that somebody, said something about an Anne Rice book and she engaged with them. Yeah. Got into this, like, on, on, and I was like, oh, no. One, you're Anne Rice. And two, oh, really? No, don't. Come on. She'd be doing it. It wasn't like he was fresh. It's like she'd been writing for 25, 30 years at this point and someone gave her such a bad review that she engaged with them. And Yeah, I mean, at some point you just, uh, you console yourself with your giant pile of money, I would think. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, she's not. She obviously not walking around going, "I'm on rice," but equally, the rest of us are going, "Yeah, you are. Don't don't be doing that." You know, it's just <laughs> you've earned the right to be a bit smug at the position you've achieved, so you shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, I mean, I once had a person comment on one of my books, um, and. Not no offense to you, Tim. He was an American who brought some of his own baggage to the review, saying, "Oh, blatantly, this is about the the um, the, the change in the military and don't ask, don't tell, and that's what he's writing about." And I went, "What's this? Don't ask." Don't. I went and googled it, and I was like, "Oh, oh, okay, 
no, I'm English. I, I, I didn't know that, but I do now. Now I know about this change in the military. Oh, I do. Okay. No, but I can't go and tell him that. I can't go. That's your baggage. You've made that up. That's, that's not me, but. People, people get what they get from what you write. I had a, a, yeah. a book once that had a villain in it who was a cannibal. And I had someone write to me infuriated that I was promoting cannibalism <laughs> as a lifestyle. And I thought, really? <laughs> really? That, that's what you got from the book. That's, that's uh, yeah. All right. <laughs> the whole story. And that's what they pull on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you can put it out there, you know, but you can't do anything about how it lands. <laughs> so I, I know they said you should never chase uh, writing waves. Like um, we've said this, that, you know, the books that are coming out now were picked up one to two years ago. Yep. So if, if you suddenly start writing about sparkly vampires now, it's not a good, it's not a good thing. But is there anything that you personally, you would like to see in more of in the future or something that, you know, because space opera seems to be on the rise now with uh, perhaps because of the expanse and the popularity, perhaps because of other things. Um, there's more grim dark coming through that's now going to TV. I mean, what would you like to see more of as a, as a reader? I guess I'm, I will say that I have been just pretty satisfied by the breadth of what's happening in science fiction and fantasy, even from major publishers. Uh, you know, like I've been reading for the LA Times. And I'm just seeing such a huge array of hard science fiction, of, you know, spaceship stuff, of what we used to call back in the old days planetary romance, right? Stuff that's not necessarily about plying the spaceways, but is still science fiction, mm. you know, epic fantasy. We're not seeing as much of the big series epic fantasy anymore. And I mean, on the one hand, there's plenty of old big series epic fantasy that you can still go back and read. Yep. Uh, but if you want new stuff, that's maybe a niche that is not feeling super full. But I. To me, uh, we're going from strength to strength. We're seeing more and more writing from voices that have not had a lot of prominence in science fiction over the years. You know, we're mm. seeing more stuff by indigenous writers and by black writers. People who were not uh, anywhere near as prominent before are now finally starting to be picked up by major publishers and and getting books out there. Still nowhere near as much as it should be if you actually you know look at the statistics. But I feel like the trends are moving positively. And uh, the sort of stuff that the uh, that the award nominating pools, that the juries and that the awards that are voted on by readers, the stuff that they're choosing to honor uh, is going to not just the same old stuff that we used to see all the time. I, I feel like a thousand flowers are blooming. I can't think of anything that um, that I feel like there's a huge lack of. You're not seeing as much of the sort of uh, early 2000s urban fantasy kind of thing, which I did really love. Um, the sort of stuff that would mingle crime and thriller elements with magical elements. There's still some of it. I think that it's probably more that the market was really, really glutted for a while. Yes. And I mean, I, I wrote some of that stuff. I was in there glutting the market along with everybody else, you know, <laughs> uh, you know around uh, 2007, 2008, I was doing a ton of that stuff and even on into the 2010s. Um, but now, I mean, I, I've, I've been really impressed by everything that's out there. I feel like because there is such a, a huge array of different publishing options now because there is small press stuff, no novellas. I would have said, had you asked me four or five years ago, Oh, I wish I was seeing more novellas. Now there's novellas everywhere. They're becoming a dominant form in the field. Yeah. Uh, I feel like there's, um, there's just so many more niches that can be filled 
And as a result, maybe individual books aren't becoming blockbusters as much, but I think it's so much easier to find your audience and for your audience to find you mm. and to find the kind of thing that you want to read. If you like dinosaur or human erotica, it's out there, you know, you can get all of it that you want, right? Chuck Tingle, isn't it? That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we know Chuck that. Tingle Lord, uh, yeah. Chuck Tingle. <laughs> Good Lord. Yeah, there's enough of that. Plenty of that. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I find I, I sometimes struggle with, I don't know if you do because you're constantly working on different things, but when you're working on a, a, your current work in progress, are, are you constantly coming up with ideas for the next thing or the next thing after that? Oh, it's maddening. It's awful. Yeah, no, I have a, I have notes on my phone. I've, I've just jotted down everything from lines to paragraphs. I have, when I sit down, you know, I write a Patreon story every month and I sit down and I have a file of like openings or sometimes it's just a line or an image, and sometimes it's whole paragraphs, right? Sometimes it's the starts of stories, and uh, and I, you know, I just jot them down and I try to move forward. If I jumped around and followed every impulse, I would never get anything done. But yeah, I mean, I have, I've had ideas. I've had an idea for a big sort of post-apocalyptic thriller that I've wanted to write for years, but it's kind of weird, and I don't know that I could sell it on spec. So I kind of I want to make sure that I can pull it off before I try to sell it. Right. And I just haven't had a gap in my schedule of six months to try to write a book. Right. I've been, you know, not that it's a problem, but I've been, you know, selling stuff on spec. I've had contracts that I have to have to fulfill yeah. um, before I can go to to something weird like that. So, yeah, absolutely. The grass is always greener. What's in the next field? What's over the fence? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of my writing is I will read something and. I will think I would have done that differently, right? Not even necessarily I would have done it better, just I would have done it differently. Or, oh, I thought that was going in a different direction or I hoped it would. Yes. And then I'll want to do, you know, something something along those lines. Uh, like I, I read tons of multiverse stuff and I love multiverse stuff, uh, but I would often think, oh, I would have done it a little differently. And it took me years, but finally I did Doors of Sleep. I finally did that impulse. I've been thinking a lot about time loop stories. I was, it was Groundhog Day. Uh, mm -hmm. quite recently. So I was thinking about uh, time loop stories and there are lots of them that I love and really interesting takes on them. And I have an idea for an absurdly overcomplicated, impossible to elevator pitch time loop novel that I would love to write. I don't know when I'm ever going to do that, but it's, it's on the long list in my head of stuff I'd like to get to someday. Have you seen Russian doll on Netflix? I have, yeah. Yeah. Very clever uh, time loop oh, yeah. story to begin with. I, I, I just thought, uh, and then after a couple of episodes, I'm not going to spoil it for those who haven't seen it. Things start to change and you go, okay, there's, there's actually more here than I thought. Oh yeah. No, and there's extra stuff. I yeah. watched, I've rewatched it a second time only because the first time you're not really looking, you're just yeah. going along. And then the second time I think this is a lot, a lot cleverer than I thought. And they're doing mm -hmm. a second season, but I, I'm not sure if that's a good idea. Not, you know, certain things work and then they go, yeah, do another one. I'm thinking. Yeah. You not know. always a good place to go. Yeah. Maybe the creators should have just done the same creators should have done something new, but you know, maybe they'll surprise me. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. yeah wait and see. So, so what are you working on now? Or what's next? Is there a sequel to doors of sleep? There is. I just recently signed the contracts for it. Um, it's called prison of sleep. And it is, it is more of the same, but with a different sort of narrative through line. It has some, like one of the, one of the questions in Doors of Sleep is why did this happen to Zax? Why did yes. one day when he was a young adult, did he go to sleep and wake up in a different universe? Mm -hmm. um, and he has various theories 
And uh, the lecturer, who is the mad scientist that he spent some time with in the book, was fascinated by this question and also had theories. And I do know okay. why it happened. Yeah. <laughs> Just checking. And I, did, I did work it out. Right. I didn't leave that as, that's something I'll figure out in book two. I did, <laughs> I did work it out. And so in book two, that will be talked about. And it'll have some consequences and repercussions um, for how Zax is living his life. And he will have uh, sort of a new a new goal, something else that he's working on. But the great thing about Zax is uh, you can give him a mission of vital importance and tell him he needs to go do it. And he will be distracted by the first cat that's stuck in a tree that he sees or the first person whose car broke down on the side of the road or whose space car broke down on the side of the space road yeah. and go help them. Right. He will, he just can't, he can't help himself. Right. He's just, he's got to help people. So it'll still have a lot of the, the episodic feel that I really liked. You know, one of the only things uh, negative that I've seen in reviews about it is, Oh, well it feels, you know, when it starts out, it's rather episodic and, you know, you don't really spend enough time in any one world. And to me, this is like, complaining that your chocolate caramel is too sweet and gooey right like this is just what you what you get right like i be forewarned if you pick up this book you're going to go to a bunch of different worlds and it's going to feel kind of episodic and if you don't like that totally valid response but this is maybe not not the series for you so i'm still gonna still gonna do that i'm still gonna dazzle myself with a new world every few pages um but it will it will still have a narrative engine and and we'll have a there, there will be a lot of a lot of meaning in it so Good. I mean, I love her. I mean, to, some of the worlds that were so interesting, so fascinating, I did want to spend more time in them. Sure. But then it could you go, oh, but then, you know, equally, there are some that you spend a lot of time in and uh, that you wouldn't want to spend some time in. So there's, it's a balance, but it's that thing of, yeah, you get vanilla for a whole book or you get all 57 flavors of Baskin Robbins in one book. Yeah. You know, I'll go for the 57. That's That's what I would go for, so... Well, and some of those those flashes of worlds were one were ones that if I had spent more time in them, the vast implausibilities would have become perhaps a little too much to bear. Whereas if you see a flash and you know Zax is just interpreting it however he interprets it, and True. you can kind of you can get away with with weirder stuff. <laughs> yeah, because this is all through his lens. Yeah, uh, 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 yeah there's a couple of moments where it's Most. not not from his perspective, but generally it's that thing of. What, what is he seeing what we think he's seeing and how reliable is it and well yeah if you drop somebody on planet earth in in our you our branch of the multiverse and you yes. drop them in the middle of london versus you drop them in the middle of the kalahari they're going to have radically different ideas of what that is and zach's only ever sees his tiny little glimpse of whatever he sees until he falls asleep he's got a day a couple of days and that's it just you know it's, it's that thing of like you like you land in Westworld and you think everyone's crazy and trying to kill each other and it's like that was a theme park you landed in. Oh, okay, you know, entirely so. possible. Yeah, fantastic. Do you know what you're doing after that, or is that are you working on prisons now? Uh, I'm about to start it. Actually, it's due uh, in the summer. Uh, okay. I mean, I have outline and lots of notes and all that. But I'm about to start uh, doing the actual writing of it. I'm finishing up a short story now. Uh, that's what I was working on this morning. Um, it's a, well, a novella. It'll be done probably this weekend. And then I'll, then I'll jump into prison of sleep. Yeah. After that, um, I've been doing some writing for the twilight Imperium, uh, strategy board game. Oh, wow. Uh, Some stuff set in that world, that big weird space opera world. Uh, and the first one came out, uh, recently it's called the fractured void and i'm doing edits now on the second one necropolis empire i just got the edit letter back on that and thankfully they didn't say this is horrible tear it all down start from the bottom <laughs> it's it's pretty much little tweaks fortunately so so yeah yeah the next thing after that is uh is the next zach's novel and then we'll see what happens after that 
There's some potential irons and some potential fires, but no contract signed yet. Fair enough, fair enough. Fair enough, you know. Keep it, keep it close to your chest. No, no, no spoilers. No well, spoilers. you never want to say something and then have it fall through. <laughs> this is it, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Well, I, I really enjoyed Door Sleep. I thought it was fantastic. I, it, I needed something fun and exciting and interesting, and it's packed with so many ideas. As you say, it was just, there's so many little glimpses of cool things in there that I was never bored. There you go. I was, I was never bored. It was, it was written mostly before quarantine times. But I was absolutely thinking, as it was coming out, this is this is a good book to come out when no one can leave their house. Yes. Right? Now, you can, now you can see a thousand worlds. Go everywhere. Do everything. Travel. <laughs> you can go places and meet people. It's amazing. <laughs> What's, what is that like? I have no <laughs> right. idea. This is as close as I get, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> It's one of the reasons I started doing this. I miss talking to people and writers. I just, you yes, know, man. I really miss conventions. Yeah. So, but it's so much fun. Hey, thank you for coming on and talking to me. This was a lot of fun. Um, I'll put all the links down below to everyone to check out your, your books and what's going on and catch up with you on social media. But uh, uh, thanks for coming on. And I hope to see you again at a convention in the future. It would point. be good. I'd, I'd go back. Yeah. I'd, I'd love That'd to spend be great. some time on your side of the pond. Yeah. <laughs> good night, everyone. <laughs> Oh!